If you got your Bibles, we're going to be in Psalm chapter 34 today, and uh, we're beginning or continuing this series on distinctive and what it means to uh, actually be a follower of Christ. And when we think about the term Christianity, for, for many of us, it has many different meanings in here. For some of us, it's a deep, spiritual, personal thing. For others, maybe it, just the idea of Christianity in your background brings up like guilt, shame, and, and things like that. And for others, maybe there's even anger towards some things that have happened that you've seen done under the name of Christianity. We have all these different perspectives when we just hear the term Christian. But what we're going to do in this series and what we've been doing is going back and not looking at the definition of Christianity according to man or even those who wear the label of Christianity, but what does Jesus actually say that it means to follow him, to follow him, like to do what he did. And remember last week we talked about the word Christian was not even a word that Jesus used. He, he just called people to follow him. And so as we look at this, we're going to learn what it means to literally walk in Jesus' footsteps and, and what does that mean for us both internally and externally. Last week we looked at this first internal characteristic, this distinctive idea that we uh, are loved. And because we're loved, we love others. In John chapter 13 that we looked at last week, it says, people will know that you are my followers because you love one another, because you show love. And we talked about what those are. That was this internal thing that happens in our life. We are loved, and now we're able to love. And so it's it's this internal that now begins to show up externally. And what we're going to talk about today is this external aspect of a distinctive part of following Christ that's related to love And it's this idea of worship, this external experience of worship. When we take love in, worship comes out. I remember growing up, I was, uh, I I did not like spicy things growing up at all. I I enjoy them now, but uh, I remember sitting at my grandparents' dinner table one night, and my dad and my granddad loved to eat just raw peppers. And uh, I thought they were just biting into them. I was like, I can do that. And they're like, no, you really don't want to. It's really spicy. I said, no, I can handle it. And so they gave me one, and I bit into this thing. And as I swallowed it, it came into me. And immediately, the pain and the agony and the heat of that pepper began to express itself outwardly in many ways. Like my face turned red. I began to sweat. I started screaming. I was like I was like in the back corner of the table. I couldn't get out of I it. Mean, I literally crawled over the table to like get out and get my face under a water faucet just to try to cool off. Like I, I took something in and it immediately showed up on the outside. And that's what happens when we take love into our life and we begin to love other people, we begin to respond externally in worship. The external expression of love is worship. But therein lies the challenge of worship as well. Because we very often times look to other things and other people besides God as a source of love and respect that we so deeply need. I mean, even those of us who identify ourselves as followers of Christ, we often stray from believing God is the source of all that we need. I mean, we literally break our heart into pieces and we seek to find acceptance, validity, and value from other things and other people than God. And when we do this, it impacts what and how we worship, right? If we're if worship is a response to love, if we're giving and seeking love from other things, it's going to dilute 
our worship. And I end up worshiping other things and other people besides God. And this doesn't just create a divided heart. What this does is it create literally a broken heart. Because as I break my heart into pieces and I seek love from other things and they eventually disappoint and fail me, my heart is broken. And this is why God commands us to worship only him and to have no other gods before him. It's not for his good. It is for our good and for the wholeness of our heart. Yet our hearts wonder, don't they? I mean, just think about it. I mean, in the normal part of everyday life, our heart longs to feel accepted and loved and belonging. And if we don't have ourselves firmly rooted in God, we end up trying to find that in so many different places. So worship is God. Worship of God is literally an anchor for the soul. It is what anchors our soul to knowing that we are completely loved by God. And this is what I want us to search the scriptures for today. How do we drop this anchor of our souls into the deep, deep love of God through this act of worship? And it actually begins with understanding that worship is an action. It's something that we do. It takes an intentional response on our part. Paul talks about this in Romans 12, verse 1. He calls it a spiritual act of worship. Look at it. It should be on the screen. It says this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. It's an act of worship. It is a way we respond. It's this idea that we realize that God is the only source of true, unconditional love. There is no other source. And once we realize that, and then we have this, that we realize that he will continually, he has and he will continually demonstrate that love to us. He does it daily, moment by moment. And then we embrace this desperate need that we have that can only be filled by his love. And as we have that desperate need, our heart in response to that love overflows with gratitude and worship. That is an act of worship. We realize he is the only source. He continues to be that source. We're in desperate need of that love. And when we realize that, we bring it in and it becomes so fulfilling and so sustaining. It literally becomes the anchor, the place that our soul finds refuge. And so what I want us to do today is to dig into this idea of worship. How do we worship? What is this act of worship? And I want us to do this by studying someone who is known to be one of the greatest worshipers of all time. King David from the Old Testament was known as a man after God's own heart. God even called him that. That's the way he described David. He was known to worship God in good times and in bad times. He worshiped him in belief and even through doubts. He worshiped him in triumph and defeat. He worshiped him in sickness and in health, in joy and in sorrow. In all things, he worshiped God. You read through the Psalms and you will find a Psalm of David related to each one of those things. A time when David was caught in sin, a time when David triumphed in war, a time when he was lonely and felt desperate, a time when he was joyous and there were so many blessings in his life. He worshiped in all things. And so how do we do this? As David laid this out for us, we're going to look kind of this step-by-step way that he calls us to worship. And so in your Bibles, we're going to read Psalm 34, 1 through 3, and it says this. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. 
My soul makes its boast in the Lord, and let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name together. So what I want us to do over the next few minutes is take a few of these words and kind of dissect them, some of the highlighted words, and say, what do these really mean, and what are some lessons that we can learn that literally act on worship, to become an act? And it starts with this. It says that we should bless at all times. Bless at all times. I will bless the Lord at all times. The word bless here literally means to kneel. It's not like that you give them something. You are kneeling before someone. It is the picture of what happens when a king walks into a room and people kneel before him. And what this is is an act of adoration. It is a way that we show our adoration to this person. Just their presence causes us to respond in adoration. And that's what David is saying here. When you bless, just understanding you are in the presence of God causes you to have adoration and reverence for God. By kneeling before a king, you are blessing him with this adoration. You are saying that they are worthy of your esteem and of your devotion. This is not a forced kneel. This is a willing bending of the knee. David chooses to bless the Lord, and we choose to do so as well. But there's an obstacle to this in our lives, and that obstacle is a simple word called pride. Pride. We don't like to kneel. We, we like to be treated as equals at the very least, right? I mean, I, I don't want to kneel to anybody. I, I want to at least be your equal. I'd prefer to be your superior, but if I have to choose, I'll, I'll be your equal. I certainly don't want to be your subordinate. And not so subordinate that when you walk in the room, I have to kneel before you. Our pride just wells up at that. And pride will keep us from kneeling before God, and ultimately it will keep you from his presence. If you allow pride to well up in your life, you eventually separate. It goes from not kneeling to being like, I'm not, I'm not even going to acknowledge him, and you start stepping back. It'll keep you out of his presence. And we are fooled to thinking that pride is looking out for our own best interest, but instead it is actually a tool that is used to separate us from others and make us vulnerable. When pride rules in our life and we separate ourselves from God and separate ourselves from other, we become isolated from everybody else. When you're isolated, you're vulnerable. But David doesn't just say bless, and he says bless at all times. And this word all times, this is an idea that means that we have, this is a continual act, something that we're continually doing. It's not something we just do on Sunday or one night a week or in the morning when we pick up our Bible. It's something that is continually happening in our life. He was living in a constant state of adoration. He was daily by day by day, moment by morning, moment, setting aside his pride and embracing devotion. It was as he walked. It's kind of this weird picture of kneeling and walking. Like as you are going through life, you are submitting and adoring God, but yet you're following him as well. My question for you today regarding this is, what's keeping you from continually continually kneeling before God? Is your pride too great to allow you to kneel? I want to remember, help you remind you of this, that God's love is deeper for you than even your own love. As much as we love ourselves and we have pride in ourselves, God's love for you is deeper than your own love, and it can overcome that pride and that obstacle. So bless 
at all times. The second thing in the second part of verse one, it says this says, then his praise shall continually be on my mouth. I mean, we just sang that that's part of what this Psalm is saying that his praise is continually there. And the word praise here literally means to speak out or to sing out, to proclaim the good news. It's like the cheer when your team scores a touchdown or the screams of teenage girls at a concert. I mean, it is this proclamation, this loud saying, we adore you, you are ours. It is speaking it out, not just kneeling before, but it's calling it out. It is this external acknowledgement that you find something worthy of verbalizing your gratitude for. And this here is an act of thanksgiving. It's driven by being thankful. David couldn't stop talking about or singing about God. He couldn't stop talking about or singing about his amazing love, grace, peace, forgiveness, and hope. Praise was always on his lips. Always. But there can be an obstacle for us to this as well, and the obstacle is doubt. It's doubt. When we allow doubt to creep in, difficulties come into our lives, we get unexpected bad news, things don't go our way, and we believe, begin to believe that maybe God's not present, God's not even there, God's not in control, or that even God loves us. We begin to doubt those things. And doubt literally closes our mouth. We stop speaking about God and his goodness. Now, it's not that we can't bring questions before God. That's actually part of praising him. David does that all throughout the Psalms. He brings questions to God. He's speaking to God. He's raising concerns, and God speaks truth to him. And so it's not about keeping your mouth quiet. That's the last thing God wants you to do. Having praise on your lips is bringing your questions, bringing your adoration, bringing your devotion, bringing whatever it is, but speaking to God. One of the ways that I know that there's something going on in my relationship between me and Katie, my wife, is when she stops talking to me. She just gets quiet. I mean, she's already kind of quiet, but she gets like really quiet. And I'm like, what's going on? And like even the what's going on, she's like, like she just keeps it in and I'm like, I have to almost like pry it out. And then like when I, you finally pry it up and it comes out, like it's like, boom, here it is. Like, oh my gosh, how long have you been holding on to that one? But it's like, there's just this, but I would much rather, that's one of the most things that I feel the most separation is when we stop talking to each other. I'd much rather her voice her concerns. I'm sure it's the other way. She'd much rather hear from me than just keeping it quiet and closing my mouth. And when we do this, when we, when we show this, it's a way of praising God continually. Doubt creates distance, and that distance creates silence. And this is why David here says to praise the Lord with your mouth, which means this is an, an expressive act. I can't worship God. It's not worship unless I'm somehow expressing it outwardly. I can have an inward feeling, but that inward feeling is ultimately going to come out of me. It's a speaking to God, singing to God, asking questions of God, it's speaking about God, singing about God, and giving testimony to others about what God has done. Praise is an act of worship. So my question with this one is, what's keeping you from expressing your feelings about God? Do you doubt who he is? Are you concerned of maybe how others will respond or your doubts so great that they're distracting you from God instead of drawing you closer 
to him for answers? Remember God's love, it says in 1 John 4, 18, cast out all fear. God's love cast out all fear. When we begin to doubt, draw closer to God's love. The next thing David says here in verse 2 is this. He said, my soul makes its boast in the Lord and let the humble hear and be glad. And so the idea here is that we need a boast from humility. And the word boast here is it's an interesting word uh, in the old Hebrew. Uh, it means to diminish or disappear. It, it literally could be translated to become clear, become transparent. And it's so this idea that it's not that I'm do, I don't do anything to distract in my life from the work of God. I'm not telling anybody, look what I did. I'm always telling people about what God did. Pointing people to him. I'm boasting in him, not in me. It's a willingness to let something of greater worth shine in your life instead of yourself. This worship is an act of honor. It's an act of honor toward God. David, the king of the mightiest nation on the earth at that time, chose to boast not in his accomplishments or his awards, but instead to diminish himself and boast in the one that had loved him and blessed him. David didn't want to worship to be directed toward him because he knew that he was not worthy of worship. Even as the king, he was not worthy of worship. Instead, he wanted to be clear and clear the path for the people to see the true one that was worthy of worship, which was God. But there's something that keeps us from this too. And it's this idea that we need to feel significant. We want significance in our life. We want to be viewed as meaningful meaningful or memorable. We want to have stories told about us and our great works. We want songs written about us, movies made about our lives. We want books written about us. I mean, we, we desire that. We want to be remembered for generations to come. We want to make a name for ourselves and feel that our life here meant something. You know, this idea of diminishing and boasting in God is not a call to anonymity or even timidity. It's a call to humility. And that's what he says, the humble spirit, to become a, basically a conduit to help others see that the works of your hands are really the work of God through you. It is clearing out yourself so that people don't see you, they see God. And this idea of being humble, boasting in your hum, from a humble heart, means it's, it's an authentic act. It's authentic. We don't worship so that others will see what we're doing. We worship to elevate God alone. This doesn't mean that it's wrong to be famous or to be popular or to be well-liked or well-known, but what it does mean is that as we worship God, we cannot let our heart become passionate, more passionate about becoming popular, becoming famous, becoming known. Our passion should be to make God known, to make his name famous. And the question is this, what's keeping you from boasting in God. You desire more glory than God? Remember, God says, as we humble ourselves, he said this in First Peter and in James, as we humble ourselves before him, he then will exalt us. Diminish yourself so that God's light can shine through you. The last thing we'll look at here is what David says in verse 3. He says, O mighty, magnify the Lord with me, and let us exalt his name forever. So the word magnify here literally means to enlarge and the word exalt means to lift up, to, ex- 
to enlarge and lift up, proclaiming something for all to hear. Visually, what comes to mind here is something that we've seen, like literally in the news the last few days, like these protests, right? I mean, people are carrying signs with big words written on them above their head. They're proclaiming something. They're, they're showing. And, you know, as, as I watched the news yesterday, I don't remember many of the faces that I saw in the crowd, but I remember some of the signs that I read because they were enlarged and lifted up. And that's literally the visual that God is giving us here, that David is saying to magnify and exalt the Lord is to enlarge him and hold him high, to wave his banner. And this is an act of allegiance, that we carry his flag, that we are walking in his army, that we are part of his team. David wasn't telling people to wave his banners or even wave the banners of Israel or some certain tribe. He was telling everyone to wave the banner of God and God alone. Exalt his great works. Proclaim to all the people what he has done. And this can be hard for us as well because of one simple thing, and it's called entitlement. It's our obstacle. We think we deserve something. We should at least receive some of the credit. We think we have rights and that we should have some say in things. We want to be treated fairly. And this entitlement mindset eventually leads us to thinking that God owes us something instead of remembering that we owe God everything. And when I start to embrace entitlement, it will ultimately lead me, lead me to have enmity toward God. Not just separate me like we talked about before, but it will cause me to, to be angry at God. Why are you getting all the credit and not me? And this means that we have to stop thinking that we can find our ultimate value and ultimate worth in ourselves and realize the only place that we will find our ultimate worth, our ultimate value, and our ultimate identity is knowing that we are, in the, we are followers of Christ and we are waving his banner It's declaring our allegiance to him, knowing that we get to inherit the kingdom of God. We become joint heirs with Christ, no longer slaves, but sons and daughters. And he says that we should do this together, which means this is a communal act. This is something that we do as a group, as a body together, not something done in isolation. It isn't meant to be done without the power of others uniting their spirit with yours. There is power in numbers. And when Christ's church worships together as an act of adoration and thanksgiving and honor and allegiance, the power of God flows through us as we worship together. As we do all of these things, it changes us. It changes our spirits. It changes our life. It brings joy and freedom and unity and hope and grace and peace begin to elevate in our life. And the question I have for you today is this. What is keeping you from pledging your allegiance to God? Would you consider to stop demanding that you're entitled to something and start allowing the power of God to flow through you instead? Would you remember that God is for you and not against you? I want us to close our service today with a chance to respond in worship, to worship together. And so we're going to have a chance where we're going to do that musically and we're going to sing together. 
But as we do that, I want us to understand, as, as we began at the beginning, I told you, worship is not for God's for glory. I mean, it's for his glory, but God does not need our worship to exist. As we worship God, though, it does impact our lives. It brings things in to our lives. And remember I said that worship, as we focus on God, it will change us, change how I think, change what I say, will change how I respond. And if we are willing to approach God continually, expressively, and authentically, and communally together, we will experience the power of God like never before. I want you to hear the rest of Psalm 34. I've asked some different people to share these verses. So listen as we begin reading from Psalm 34, starting in verse 4. Worship brings deliverance. Psalm 34, 4-7. I sought the Lord, and he answered me, and delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and delivers them. Worship brings satisfaction. Psalm 34, 8-10 says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Worship brings wisdom. Psalm 34, 11 through 14. Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. Worship brings relief, Psalm 34, 15 through 18. The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Finally, worship brings protection, Psalm 34, 19 through 22. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. Would you join me and stand? And as we have a time of responding to God verbally, your worship, would you allow the Spirit of God that is in this place, let His love overwhelm you, and respond to Him as we sing in these moments.